Hebrews chapter 12 is where we will be. Good to see you guys on this kind of rainy morning. Um, we are closing in at the end of Hebrews, okay? So we've been at it for about a year now, um, and we are getting right up to the end of this little sermon that has been kept for us um, as we continue to worship. Uh, I won't be here next week. Uh, I'll be in San Antonio speaking at a middle school retreat, uh, so you can pray for me if you think about it. I'll be going four times next weekend. Um, and then in my place here, uh, Will Rutherford will be here, so make him feel at home. Um, I'm excited for you guys to get to hear him and God's word through him. When we come back, we'll have two more weeks in Hebrews. We'll be done completely. Uh, we'll be out of Hebrews. We'll start a new series in November uh, called The Messy Kingdom, uh, going through a couple parables that Jesus told. Uh, and then when we hit the new year in January, we'll start another, uh, our next book series in Acts. Uh, so we'll walk through the book of Acts uh, and see how the Spirit moved in and through the early church, and then maybe how that applies to us as we try to figure out this church thing. We try to be on mission together, our mission statement here at the church, to make disciple-making disciples. That's why we're here. That's why we get together. That's why we worship. Um, we're not just on these individual paths of spirituality, but we're here together to worship and to grow together. And so we're going to look in the new year of how we can do that, particularly in light of how he has already done it. Uh, in the, the first century church. So excited about that. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, as the sermon kind of concludes here toward um, the end of the book, you see a lot of the themes that we've talked about for at very um, at length uh, through these last uh, few months, they'll start to come rushing back together here at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. So things like the new covenant that we've talked about, things like Jesus' priesthood, his sacrifice for us, the message that God is speaking to us, they'll all kind of come back in. You'll remember we spent four weeks in Hebrews 11 um, where it's this kind of Litany, this role of people who've had faith. Faith, Hebrews says, is what will get us to the end. Hebrews is written so that you and I would endure, we'd persevere, because there were things that come into our lives that try to get us off track. And so Hebrews is written so that we would persevere, that we would run the race well. We saw that at the end of, or at the beginning of chapter 12 last week, um, that we should run with endurance the race that's set before us. The metaphor was that we are athletes. And so we need to look at Jesus, fix our eyes on him, Acknowledge that there's a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on from the past and from around us. And then run with endurance. And so he says, strengthen yourselves. I mean, get your knees and your arms. Strengthen yourselves. Train yourself so that you can run the race and you can finish strong. And he says, and get rid of that which would trip you. Get rid of that which would entangle you. Strip down. Just like a, an athlete in the Greek Olympics who's going to run the foot race. Get those things off that will trip your feet up. Get rid of that sin or those things that hold you back as you pursue Christ. And so we finished off in verse 13 last week. We'll pick it back up in 12 because it all kind of flows together real nicely. In 12 he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And he's going to continue on in verse 14 in our text this morning um, with what this path looks like. Okay, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, the community here, um, he's writing to his congregation. They're given some um, marching orders in a sense. They're some, given some commands, excuse me. There's three of them here. Uh, he says, strive for peace, strive for holiness, and then watch for each other. 
watch out for each other. And so we'll hit these um, one after the other. The first thing he says here is, is we need to fight for unity. He says, strive for peace as you are this community following Christ together, trying to finish the race as one group. He says, you need to be united. You need to be one. You need to have strong relationships that withstand troubles and trials and divisions and arguments and misunderstandings. You need to be one. And he says, strive for this. Work for it. Sweat for it. Plan for it. This is not something that comes easy. And anyone who's ever been in a relationship says amen. If you're married right now, you know that, right? This doesn't happen naturally. You have to work for it. Um, what he's getting at here, if you go all the way back to the scriptures, in Genesis 3, humankind went away from God. We rebelled. We call it the fall of mankind. And a few things in creation started to fracture. So the way that creation was set up to work started to fracture and things didn't work the way they were intended to. One of these things was our relationship with each other. So if you go all the way back, the curse given to the woman, to the man, um, their relationship is going to be filled, uh, filled with tension. It's going to no longer work exactly like it was supposed to, where they're in harmony, they're united with each other, they're in a peaceful relationship. But there'll be tension. You don't go much further. Genesis chapter 4, when you get Cain and Abel, you remember the story we talked about in chapter 11, a brother murders his brother. Yeah, human relationships have been fractured. We've come apart. Um, Psalm 14 uh, would tell us that, I mean, if you want to see sin, if you want proof of sin, you want proof that something's gone wrong in the world, you need to look no further than the fact that there is poverty and injustice and the fact that we kill each other. Two things. One, um, that there is enough, but yet some are without so there's enough medicine, there's enough food, but today people will die without food and die without medicine. And he says, obviously, something's gone wrong. I mean, something's gone wrong in the world that we can't even take care of each other. Even when we try, things get in the way, people get in the way, systems get in the way. Something's gone wrong. And then the fact that if you look historically, I don't want to make light of it, but one of the things that humans have always done is we've always killed each other. And we've always killed each other. We've always been mean to each other. So the relationship between mankind has been fractured, completely fractured. But with Jesus' redemption, with his forgiveness for us, with this community, this group that he creates, those relationships are restored. We, we might think of the church as a witness, in a sense, a sign of restored relationships. And so just as it's a sign when you see human beings not getting along and not living as they were intended, it's a sign of sin it's a sign of the kingdom of this world so when you see a group of people living the way god intended it's a sign there's a new ruler there's a new age there's a new kingdom that you can be a part of and the christian community functions like that as we serve each other as we respect one another as we build one another up just says strive for peace and what he's saying here is he's not saying that there won't be conflict right peace in a christian community is not the absence of conflict but it's the presence of maturity even amidst conflict. Does that make sense? Um, so people who, who will hop from church to church to church to church for their whole lives typically are looking for a church that has no conflict. Um, they're looking for a church where there's just peace and everyone's there. The problem is if you stay around long enough, you're going to see some conflict. When human beings get together, there are things they disagree on. There are things that they don't um, mesh well about with. But a Christian community, it's not that there's no conflict. It's, that it's handled with maturity. It's handled with people who are striving after peace, who are striving after unity. And so that typically takes humility. It takes being able to say, I'm wrong, or maybe let me think about if I was wrong instead of just 
out of the gate saying, no, I'm not going to listen. It takes forgiveness, constant forgiveness. It says strive for peace. If you want this straight path, this is we're running a race. If you want to run well, not only do you have to get rid of things, not only do you have to strengthen your muscles, but you need this community working together rightly. You need to have a small group. You need to have people that you talk to on a daily basis. You need to have people who are praying for you. You need to have people that you can work through disagreements with. Strive for peace. Here's the second one. Strive for peace, same verb, different object. And then strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says fight for unity and he says struggle for obedience. Struggle for obedience. Again, we have the same verb here. That's going to be difficult. It's going to take work. It's going to be something we sweat at. He says it's the holiness a specific one, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so if we, we walk through the scriptures and, and wonder what is this holiness, um, we'll again and again come back to this idea that it's not perfection, that it's not this 100% obedience where we have now earned our way into God's presence. It's instead a struggle. It's an attempt. It's a pursuit of obedience. It's a growing and a slow pursuit of being conformed to who God is in his son. It's a, a lifetime of learning, we could say, to say no to the old life and to say yes to the new life. We've got, um, so I was, I mean, I was saved when I was 16, 17 years old. So that's 17 years of learning to disobey, that I've been training myself, I've been teaching myself to follow my own desires, to do whatever seems right to me, and now I've got to learn. It's, a, it's a, a learning thing. He says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then this last one, strive for peace, strive for holiness. In verse 13 or 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes many to be defiled, and that no one is immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright and then could not repent. He says, you and I need to watch out for each other. We need to take responsibility for each other. He's talking to a community. Again, they're trying to run their race well. They're trying to run together and finish strong. And he says, see to it that these things don't happen amongst you. Watch out for it. Stop it when it does happen. And he lists three things here. They're kind of these parallel phrases. Um, but I think they, they kind of progress a little bit. They, they spell something out for us. He says, see to it, one, that no one doesn't get the grace of God. See to it that everyone understands the gift that is what God has done for us. Then two, see to it that no one gets bitter about life. So no one gets bitter and starts just defiling everything around them and causing all these problems and strife in the community. And then the third one, see to it that no one walks away from the promise, which is what Esau did. Um, you might remember um, from a few weeks ago when we were in Hebrews 11 or from just Sunday school years back, um, Abraham got the covenant from God, the promise that he would redeem the world through his family. That covenant, that promise went down to his son Isaac. Then Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older one, so he was the one in line for this inheritance, for the covenant promise. He comes home um, one day from hunting. He was a manly man. Uh, Jacob was kind of a girly guy. Uh, he cooked a lot, right? He was little Betty Crocker, mama's boy. Um, so he was back home with a great meal. Jacob comes in, wants the meal. Esau, a little tricky though, or Jacob, excuse me, a little tricky, gets Esau to sell his birthright. It's Esau to sell the covenant promise um, for a meal. And it's this classic example of short-term gain, right? Short-term pleasure. Feeding your gut. Feeding your, your stomach. And then losing out on the promise. Losing out on the inheritance. 
There's three things here. We watch for it and we stop it. Um, I think we could see all three of these things as almost steps down a road that lead to falling away. Um, and so he's saying here, we need to stop. We need to watch for and stop any and all progress down this road. I mean, we can walk through these two things and see it happening. I've seen it before. Um, the first thing that happens, someone start, stops understanding what God has done in and through the cross and what he has called them. They stop understanding the gospel, the good news. They stop understanding the kingdom of God. They stop understanding the gift that is the life that is theirs. And when that happens, one of two things always happen. They either get arrogant and think that they have earned their way into their standing before God. That they have done things where others could not. Or they fail and don't understand that they're forgiven and it's by grace that they're in. And they feel like a failure and they walk away. And he's saying, hey, in your community, watch out for this. Watch out that people don't start misunderstanding grace, the gospel, the kingdom. And then the second kind of road down there, he says, and then watch out that people don't start getting bitter about everything that happens around them. Bitterness is this weird emotion and state of being where you kind of distort everything around you. I mean, bitterness is one of the most awful things about it is it just kind of, it, it looks for good things around it so it can crush them and it can, it can twist them and it can tear them down. You become bitter. And so usually what happens is your life isn't going the way you thought it should go. And so you start blaming the people around you. If I'm not content, if I'm not, if my life isn't exactly how I planned it to be, somebody around me must be doing something wrong because it's never my fault. Right? It's never just maybe the discipline that God has put in my life, according to last week's text. It's somebody else's fault. And so we start being bitter. We start tearing down other people. Again, we, we stop striving for this peace. And he says, and the whole community gets defiled. I mean, the whole community becomes really impure really quickly. He says, watch for that. And then this last one is, is watch for someone who would walk away from the covenant, who would walk away from the promises that God has offered them. For temporary pleasures, for their sinful desires. He says, you and I as the Christian community, we have a mutual responsibility. Just saying, okay, we need a straight path. We need a straight path to our goal. What's it going to look like? Well, there's going to be a community. That's implied here. You've got a community. You're doing this together. And you need to have peace. And you need to obey. And you need to watch out for each other. Now, he'll move in. Look at me in, in verse 18. He'll move into... Um, kind of a teaching, the truth behind why we're living this way. Um, he often does this. The scriptures are um, formed this way. There is a truth. There is right thinking behind our right behavior. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12. And so in 18, verse 18 here, um, he'll go into kind of this comparison that will help us see the foundation for this life. For, he says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He compares two things here. Um, What he's comparing, he's giving us kind of a a picture metaphor of two mountains. He says, you haven't come to this first mountain, and you have come to the second mountain. Um, And the mountains are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Um, And so again, if you've had a lot of church background, maybe you're recognizing those words. He doesn't use the word Sinai for this first mountain, but it's obvious that's what he means. Um, When the Israelites, God's people, walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea, they came to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and it was there that God gave them the law. It was there that God formed them into who they needed to be as his people. And so this is the old covenant, Exodus 19. God makes a covenant at Sinai. Here are the priests. Here are the sacrifices. Here's the atonement. And all of Hebrews, again, has been pointing and comparing these two covenants. You have the old covenant with the priest and the sacrifice, and then you have the new covenant with a high priest, Jesus, with a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. And the old was not bad, it's just that the good is better. The old is just incomplete. It was pointing forward to what Jesus would accomplish with his death, with his life, with his priesthood, with his sacrifice. And so at Mount Sinai, you can read it. It's coming from Exodus 19. They go, God comes to a mountain. He's dwelling there. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple yet. And he's dwelling there. And because he's there, it's a very intense experience at that mountain. To the point where, again, the Israelites are told, you know, if an animal comes close, touch the mountain, they'll die. And they get a little afraid. And so one, they say, Moses, why don't you go talk to God? And said, right, you go talk on our behalf. And then Moses himself, their leader, their hero, is like, I'm a little afraid. This is a little intimidating. He, he throws out a handful of adjectives, of, of things that communicate this to us. It's a mountain that can't be touched. It's a blazing fire. It's darkness. It's gloomy. There's a trumpet. There's a voice whose words strike fear. In a sense, he's using um, Sinai as a extended metaphor for, we could say, unmediated holiness. And he says, we haven't come to that mountain. We haven't come to the mountain where God is so holy and we have no way into his presence, where we tremble and, and strike back in fear. He says, instead, we've come to a different mountain, to Mount Zion. Mount Zion was a place in Jerusalem after the Israelites had entered the promised land, where they set up the temple, where God's presence dwelt, where the sacrifices were made. And he says, Mount Zion, this is Mount Zion, it's also the city of the living God. We've heard about this city. This is the city that's coming. For those who have faith, this is the city that's being prepared for them. The eternal city will enjoy where all death and sickness and pain and sorrow are banished. He says, this is that city. It's not Zion. It's the temple, the true temple, God's actual presence, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we've come to this mountain, to angels and gathering and a party, to the firstborn, to the redeemed, who are enrolled, to God, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the blood that speaks a better word. He's using, in a sense, Mount Zion as a a metaphor for joyful salvation. We've come to the new covenant. And again, here we're seeing all these themes kind of run together. We've come to the new covenant where we're invited into God's presence. That's this idea here. We've come to the temple, the true temple. We're invited into his presence where the angels are. Where they're singing in, in festal gathering, where they're having this party, the celebration because of who he is. Where the firstborn and the spirits of the righteous, where the redeemed and those who have died before us are being made perfect, are enjoying his presence. And now notice here on the tense of verse 22, it says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. That's present tense. 
there's this tension here in the scriptures that's often here in the scriptures elsewhere as well, um, that this is a present reality and a future reality. This redemption, this salvation that you and I have become a part of, have been given. It both starts now and continues and is completed in the future. And so one could easily say, reading here, I have not come to this city. I mean, that's the whole point of chapter 11, right? You need faith, you need to trust, and you need to believe. Why? Because at times the world around you looks like that city is never coming. It's not here. But he says also, in a true sense, you've come to it. You've come to share in it. Jesus in John 17, he would say that eternal life is just to know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. And since it starts now, there's this real present aspect of salvation in the scriptures. You and I get to share in it. We get to taste it. And yes, it's true. It's not complete. And it is coming. But in a real sense, we have come to Mount Zion. We are invited into his presence. So Hebrews chapter 4 says, draw near, find help, approach him in worship. He says, this is what you've experienced. This is what's been given to you in the new covenant. And then he says, our way into the temple, our way into his presence is based on Jesus' sacrifice, the mediator of the new covenant, opposed to Moses, who mediated the old covenant. Now we have Jesus, who mediates, who's our high priest, and who is our sacrifice for us. And it's his blood, it says, it's his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's forgiven and washed us. It's not that God has changed. It's not that he stopped being holy. That he stopped, in a sense, being terrifying and powerful and majestic. It's instead that something else has changed. There's been an objective reality shift, which is a sacrifice made on our behalf. Which is Jesus going into the throne room with his blood. It's interesting if you you see this um, in verse 24. The blood, the sprinkled blood, it's speaking. It's really interesting. How does blood speak? What does it say? If you'll remember from the story, Abel's blood, it cries out to God. It cries out about, again, the brokenness and the fracturing of the world, about the sin that had entered into creation. It cried out for vengeance and punishment. So the question is, what does Jesus' blood, sprinkled over you and I, cry out? It cries out, forgiven. It cries out, bought. It cries out, cleansed and washed, accepted here. It says they're enrolled in this city. Their name is on the list. It says the blood is, is speaking out to us. And so it says that's our, our motivation. That's why we're running and running fast and we're working. And that's why even when things are hard, we endure and we suffer, but we keep going. And then we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews he gives his congregation these warnings, and he's trying to wake them up out of a slumber. He's going to give his last kind of warning here, I mean, his last kind of plea to the congregation. We'll see in verse 25. He says, therefore, I mean, because of all this, 33, or 25, I'm sorry, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, those in the old covenant, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, 
things that cannot be shaken may remain. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. One last time, he pleads to his congregation to listen to God. This is God speaking to you. Listen to him and respond to him. Do not refuse the message that he's communicating to you. And he makes this argument, we've seen it before, that in this old covenant, if you refuse that message, there were consequences. There were harsh consequences. How much more in this glorious, better covenant, this promise of salvation, will those who reject it face consequences? He says our response to it, it it merits either a fearful threat or a hopeful promise. It's a threat for those who refuse. And it's a promise for those who respond with faith and hope and worship. Flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see he's really kind of wrapping up. He's coming back in a full circle um, as he ends his sermon here. Um, In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We have this idea here that God is speaking. He's declaring a message to us. Psalm 19 would say the created order is speaking to us. It's communicating to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. And he says, now God is speaking a message to us through his son, through the cross, through the spirit. And then in chapter 2, we see the same exact argument we just read in Hebrews 12. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, which has been what he's trying to do in Hebrews, right? Pay closer attention to his sacrifice. Pay closer attention to what Jesus has called from you. Pay closer attention to what has happened in history and where history is going. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, remember, Jewish tradition said that the law at Mount Sinai was given through angels. So if what happened at Mount Sinai, given through angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is if that was how serious this is. And if this is better, how much more serious is this? How much more awful for those who walk away from the promise that God is offering to them? So he says again in in chapter 12, verse 25, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. At that time when he spoke at Sinai, the earth was shaken. It was shaken. It was moved. There was this earthquake. He says, but he's promised. And he quotes now from Haggai 2.6. He says this quote, not only was the earth shook in, shaken um, at Mount Sinai, but he says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So there was this earthquake, but now there's, in a sense, going to be this heaven quake. He's going to shake everything out. Um, the author of Hebrews draws this out for us. He says, the phrase 27, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He says there's going to be this one more episode. God shakes things, and that which is temporal, that which is not eternal, that which does not remain, will fly off. And that which remains will stay. 
This is a really interesting image for how God will, in a sense, judge the world. Remember, justice is a good thing. We confuse it often, but justice is a good thing. We all want God to rid the world of things that don't belong here. We all want there to be a day where there is no cancer. And we all want there to be a day where there aren't these relationships that we struggle with. And we all want there to be a day where there is no death and funerals. Where the sound of a grieving parent is not heard. And how that's going to happen, according to this imagery, is God's going to pick up everything. Not only the earth, but the heavens itself. He's going to shake it. And those things will fly off. And what will remain is His. It's the kingdom. It's this real interesting image. It reminds me of um, when I'm cleaning out my car. Uh, you've got like the little floor mats, right, under your feet and in the passenger seat. Um, and they never look too dirty to me. Um, but every now and then I'll, I'll be cleaning things out and I'll take them out and I'll start shaking them in the air. And all this dust and dirt will fly off. And I'm always surprised how much was actually there I didn't know and how clean it looks afterwards. And it's the same image, right? God's going to pick everything up and he's going to shake it out. And all the things that don't belong fly off. And what's left, he says, is the kingdom, his kingdom, his city, Mount Zion, and his people. And so this is where the threat or the promise comes in. Those who refuse him, what fate is there but for them to be shaken off? For those who accept and come and worship and endure, he says they've received a kingdom that can't be shaken. This is great news to us. God is is ridding the world of things that don't belong in it. He's going to shake things out. But for those who have responded with faith, they have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Both one that is coming for them, future, and one that right now is present. One that they experience and take part in right now. And so those who are his will remain and the eternal city of joy. And he says, therefore, because of that, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He says, this creates in them thankfulness and worship. It creates in this community those who have received the promises and are following after the living God. It creates in them this heart that God was after all along. If you remember, we talked about sacrifice. God wasn't after animals. He wasn't after blood. What he was after was a human heart that would lay their lives down in front of him. That would offer up thanksgiving. That not only would the created world declare his glory and communicate how awesome he is, but that there would be a group of human beings who also bring up praise to him who bear his image, who reflect back to him how beautiful and glorious he is. And so it says those who, who receive this kingdom should be grateful and should worship with reverence and awe. And he ends here by saying, our God, our God, he's a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And again, I think you have to run this image between these two mountains. Unmediated Without a sacrifice over you, fire will burn, and it will destroy, and it will extinguish. But for those who have come to Mount Zion, for those who have come to the sacrifice, 
for those who have come to the high priest, for those who have come to this new covenant, this fire is, is something that, again, is respected with maybe fear and trembling, reverence and awe, but something that is held on to, is something that brings them joy and security. I mean, God being a consuming fire, his just raw majesty and power and glory can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what side of the team you're on, right? For those who face that power and that glory, shaking them out, it's not good news. For those who are part of the kingdom, they stand by and they, they sing, they worship, they, they're thankful. And they say he's a consuming fire. There's nothing in his way that will stop him from accomplishing what he wants to do. I mean, this is a great image for us with all these fires that we've been experiencing, right? You would think it'd, it'd be easy to put them out, to just put them out. But once a fire really gets going and really has, has force behind it, it just kind of consumes and it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And the image that we have here from Hebrews and the rest of the scriptures, the history is headed somewhere. God is consuming it. He's going to rain down to where his glory fills the earth. Revelation says Mount Zion, what will happen, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and become one with earth, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the city of God. That's where we'll dwell forever. And nothing will stop our God from accomplishing this. And so for one last time, the author, he, he looks at his congregation and he, he continues to speak to you and I thousands of years later. And he says, listen, listen. Today, if you hear his heart, listen to him. Don't refuse him. Respond by striving for peace, for holiness. Watch out for each other. Examine your own heart to see, have you failed to receive the grace? Have you walked away from the promise? Have you become bitter? Then respond in worship and thankfulness. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. See to it that no one refuses him who's speaking. See to it that, I mean, what a travesty to miss out on the blood that speaks a better word than Abel. You and I, on our own, have Abel's blood on our hands. We're a part of this violent, broken, fallen world that has rebelled against God. And when God shakes things out, that blood is, is going away. But the sprinkled blood that speaks the message of forgiveness and redemption and salvation will remain. Today, if you hear, listen and respond. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for our time this morning. I pray that um, wherever we are uh, in our individual lives, in our family lives, uh, that you would um, speak to us in such a way that we, we hear you. And even when we try to ignore you, we're, we're hearing you and you're coming through and, and we're able to respond and we're able to worship and we're able to pursue you. Um, I pray that we would run well and finish strong and not be distracted, not thrown off course and not be surprised when things come our way that threaten to do that. That we instead work and train and run together. Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts your sacrifice for us, your forgiveness for us, the covenant, the new covenant, the promise that we stand in, that we are yours and you are ours. And you've taken our iniquities and thrown them into the sea. 
and you prepared a city for us. And we're there now in a sense as we worship and pray and approach you. And we're waiting and anticipating and celebrating already the day when that city is here. And we are with you. It's in your son's precious and perfect name that we pray all of these things. Amen.